Lord, as the children were thinking, we, we pray that we might be a church that never thinks we can move on from the gospel of grace. Lord, you know the tendency of our hearts to drift towards things that we have to do, boxes that we have to tick. You know the fact that we love it being about us and achieving and earning and how we can find grace offensive. And so guard our hearts, please. Speak to us through these verses. We don't simply want a better grasp of verses in the Bible, but we want to hear your voice and to know you better. And so we come to you expectant because we know you love to speak. In your son's name, amen. We find it very hard to see them, but in our world we have In our Western world, we have um, sacred modern values, uh, principles, ideas, frameworks for living. And they kind of affect everything. They affect our knee-jerk reactions to things. They affect our expectations. They are glasses that we wear that we're not really sure or, or we don't remember that we wear them. We're not aware of them. They feel very natural. Three examples for you. Um on the screen. The first one is look after number one. That is, you are the most important person in your world. You are the hero of your story. Guys, it's about you, okay? You owe it to yourself to look after number one first. And we just kind of accept that, because that's the way it's done. That's cool. Um, that leads into the, the idea that we, we should cram in all we can. Do you know, if this life is all about you, if you set the agenda, if your time is limited, well, write a bucket list. Write a bucket list and tick them off when you get the chance. Fill your life with experiences and the stuff that you want to do. There was an interview um, just this last week uh, in The Guardian with Eddie Izzard, um, the uh, comedian who many of you will have um, come across, a kind of social activist as well, and they're asking him, why is he so active? Why does he do these kind of crazy marathons and stuff? And, and he said, well, if this is it, if this is all there is, if you've just got one shot at life, then dream big and do all that you can. So cram it all in. And if anyone criticizes you, if anyone looks down on you for that, for your life, for questioning your lifestyle or your priorities, well, just remember, guys, it's your truth that matters. Yeah, there are always going to be haters. They really will. So just ignore them. If there are people who don't get it, just sideline them and get on with being you and doing your stuff. And don't listen. If it's working out for you, that's cool. Three sacred, modern, Western values. We listen to them in the music charts. We we watch them on the cinema screen, we, we read them in the papers, we see them on adverts, we see them in our friends, we see them in our own hearts, even. And if you like conflict, then let me encourage you to challenge them. Look after number one. Cram in all you can. And if, if they don't like you for it, then at the end of the day, it's your truth that matters. And, you know, we call them, or I call them, modern Western values. But I'm not sure they're so modern when it comes down to it. I think if you were to come with me to Colossae 
2,000 years ago, you would find a very similar framework, very similar glasses that people saw the world through. So Paul had never been to um, Colossae himself. Do you remember the message of Jesus has been taken by Epaphras to the city? Um, it was quite a small center. There were a mix of Jew and Gentile there intermingling. There was a commercial, a cultural, a religious life. It was a hustle-bustle type place. It was in the Lycus Valley, um, a fertile area. There was a textile industry, and so that there was wealth. It was on a trade route, and so prosperity and people and cosmopolitan. You can read the history books, and you can see it was famous for, for baths, for, for wine, for trading, for wealth, for pleasure, for hedonism. The kind of place where looking after yourself first where cramming all you can into life is normal behavior, the kind of place where there might be diverse truth claims living next door to each other in a hustle and bustle of cosmopolitan living. But as long as you're true to yourself, as long as you hold fast to your truth, then don't worry what everybody else says. And you see then Colossians in the first century and Oxford in the 21st century aren't so far apart when it comes down to it. Which means the way Paul begins his letter, the way he kicks off, is very surprising because he writes to a church, a small church, made up of people who, who have been changed by something. Something is different about them. Their lives have been turned upside down. In fact, I think each of these sacred three values have been squashed challenged here are a people who are very different you might walk past them on the street and they look like you but actually on the inside they're very different they live for different things they've been changed beyond all recognition and so Paul kicks off the letter bubbling over with thankfulness for them have a look at what he says so if you're thinking about looking after number one look at verse four and see he is thankful because we have heard of the love you have for all God's people, here are a people marked by love. It's there again in verse 8, to have told us of your love in the Spirit. And where the world says, put yourself first, where the world says, your life is about you, Paul hears of these Colossian Christians, and he hears of an authentic, rich love among them. And it's not natural. It's the kind of love that puts other people first. It's the kind of love that is painful and, and costly and hurts. And so he thanks God for their love for one another. Or again, where the world says, guys, cram in all you can. Tick off the bucket list. Make the most of the time you have now. Don't waste a second. Live your best life now. Paul is thrilled that for the Colossians... that. They've been changed because of the hope stored up for you in heaven. Do you see verse 5? They have an eye to the future. They know that this is not all there is. They know that Jesus was raised again, that he's ascended to the Father, that he's ruling now. They know he's coming back. And that difference, that reality then makes an impact on their lives now. They haven't got to cram it all in because they have a hope. They haven't got to experience everything now. Isn't that striking? Their now is different because of then. 
And then finally, in a world where, where everything is true, and what matters most is that we are true to ourselves, that it's your truth that matters, actually Paul talks about a commitment to a real truth that changes things, a commitment, a, a trusting in something else, something that's come from elsewhere that's changed their world, a faith. Do you see again and again verse 4 of their faith in Christ Jesus? Verse 5, this faith along with the love that springs from the hope. And I take it is this faith that is at the heart of their change. That is what has transformed them. This truth in something that has made them different. And this truth weaves right through the verses for us. You get glimpses there. So verse 5, it's the true message of the gospel that's come to you. Verse 6, again, in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. Actually, zoom in with me onto verse 6 because it's quite important. It's important because we read firstly this message that has changed them is a message about grace. It's not just some nice thoughts or some advice or some sort of lifestyle things, things to do, boxes to tick. Here's how to transform your life. Do these things. No, no, it's God's grace. Our God, in his kindness, giving us what we don't deserve, pouring out mercy and blessing where we deserve punishment, where he adopts us as his. Not because he needs to, not because we're lovely, goodness me, no. But because despite our sin and our brokenness, because of his love, he makes us his. And so there is blessing where there should be curse. It's his grace. Maybe you're here, you're muddled on what this whole kind of Christian thing is about. Um, I want to say, grip onto that idea of grace, and I'd love to chat to you afterwards about that. For the Colossians, this grace had changed them. And I know, looking around this room at Magdalen Road, this idea of grace, of God's grace, still changes people today. Back into verse 6 again. Secondly, it's important because the first half, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. And that matters if you remember, if you were here last week, because, or if you were in with the kids' lot as well, because we were thinking about what was going on in Colossae, trying to give a big picture overview. And it seems that the church had this desire to grow. It had a desire for flourishing, for maturing, for growing up as a Christian, but the problem was they'd look for it in all the wrong places. It had become about what you had to do. And so almost as an aside on the way past verse 6, Paul says, do you want to know about growth? Actually, here is how you grow. It's the gospel of grace that makes you grow, and it's doing it all over the world. Verse 
problem there was they had these kind of plausible-sounding spiritual dead ends that they were running after. We don't quite know what's going on, but we picked up some sort of threads later on in the letter. There's stuff in that you had to know. There was special knowledge and wisdom, which is kind of a theme that comes up again and again. There was stuff you had to do. There were rules you had to follow. Chapter 2 and verse 20 around there. There were things you were to experience as well. Presumably, do know this, do this, and you experience this. Mystical, spiritual things, worship of angels, that kind of stuff. And yet Paul says, guys, if you really want to thrive and mature, there aren't silver bullets. There is no fast track to holiness. Don't run after those things. No, 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 no. Come back to the gospel of grace. Come back to Christ. And that's why he thanks God for them. He thanks God because the gospel has been at work in them. They are living in a way that is different from the rest of the world. There's a love for each other. There's a a faith in Jesus Christ. There's a hope which changes now. Which is strange then because Paul writes to this little church in a relatively little town. A church that he's not founded. He's not been there. A church that as we'll see there are some issues going on and there's some kind of junk they've got to deal with later on. But he is really upbeat as he kicks off. He is thankful. It might not look powerful. It might not look impressive. It might feel rather like Colossi looms over them. Maybe they feel intimidated. But Paul is thankful because he knows this message of grace changes everything. And this is God's strategy to change the world. And here we are sat in a primary school gym on chairs that are pretty uncomfortable with a kind of PA that's a bit dodgy and a bunch of misfits like me and you guys and we can be thankful because this is the way that God changes the world this message of grace changes everything it transforms this world this is God's strategy and so he begins he starts the letter in a thankful way Now, over the summer months, we had a series, if you were here, thinking about some of Paul's prayers um, in various letters, various things going on. And one of the things we said and we saw was it, it didn't just give us a model of the kind of things that we can pray for, but we said that each prayer was fairly contextual. Paul was writing to specific people with specific stuff going on. And so what's striking, I think, as you as we look at this prayer in a moment, we'll think what he prays for, but also why he prays it in light of what's going on in Colossae. These prayers aren't just kind of vacuums that we can sort of control C, control V into my life, copy and paste. But rather they're real people, real situations, real churches going through real issues. And I take it as we look at this prayer, verse 9 onwards, we shall see something of why he prays this. And that will become clearer and clearer and clearer as we go week after week through the letter. I'm going to read the verses again for us. I'm actually just going to head up to verse 12. There's too much to say today, so we're going to stop at verse 12. um, And maybe we'll pick up 13 and 14 next week. Verse 9. For this reason, Paul says, Since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We, We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives 
so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Notice before we jump in, he looks back. Uh, He looks back to see the previous stuff to see, um, he gives thanks because of the love and the faith and the hope. He says, for this reason. That is, he hears they are doing well. He, he can tell that God is at work among them. He is excited by their news, and so he, he prays for them. Isn't that interesting? It's striking. I think sometimes for us, we, we hear perhaps someone's become a Christian. We hear there's growth, and we can kind of cross them off the list move on to more important people. We stop praying, but Paul has heard of what's going on. He has heard of their good things. He has heard of the fruit of the gospel at work. He's seen their transformation, and now he starts praying in earnest. He's not just wanting converts. He doesn't just want baby Christians. He wants grown-ups. He wants disciples, growers. I find that striking. Maybe we ought to pray more for people whom we are encouraged by. Almost sounds topsy turvy. Maybe you see love, faith, hope in them, and and we remember then to pray for them. Lord, keep going. Lord, please keep being at work in them. Grow them up in maturity. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. And Paul, when you know the gospel of grace brings growth in the Colossians, what kind of thing should we be praying for? What do you pray for? Well, two things, essentially. There's a screen. Two things, gospel thinking and gospel living. Now, again, if you know Colossians well, um, or you were here last week, or maybe you've read it, maybe you went through it at home group, you will know something of the fact that this prayer, I think, broadly mirrors the structure of the letter how it all works out. So chapters 1 to 2, I think, is kind of gospel thinking. Paul corrects where they've got muddled, especially in their understanding of Jesus, expanding their perspective on Christ, who he is, what he's done, the treasure that he is. Paul gets him down from the dusty shelf, antiques roadshow style, and says, look what you have, you've missed it. It's priceless. Jesus is priceless. But then 3 and 4... I think is worked out in gospel living. I think there's a kind of gear change between verse 9 and verse 10 there. The gospel living is the nitty-gritty, frustrating darkness of the reality of life. You know your week that's coming up. You know the things that you dread, the people that you dread, the situations and contexts and scenarios. Well, how do these truths in chapters 1 to 2 trickle down into the darkness of our lives? How does Jesus change it? And he starts off with thinking, I think because how we think changes how we live. In in one sense, what goes on up here or or in here drives the actions, drives the way that we live. And you remember there was that thread, we've already said this, of, of wisdom, knowledge and understanding. If you do a word search at some point, you'll see it keeps coming again and again through the letter. And so he he corrects that and begins in verse 9. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit 
gives. We are dependent on him to make these things happen. It's a supernatural thing. It's a thing that only God, by his spirit, can give, that that they might know him better, that they might have true wisdom and understanding, they might have a true knowledge of his will. So step one, pray that the spirit might give us that kind of a knowledge and understanding. What is, though, this knowledge of his will? I'm going to pull briefly into a lay-by because we can get muddled on this. And where he speaks of will, we've said this before, but easily we can think it's kind of to do with whether we should marry, who we should marry, where we should live, what kind of job we should do, what church we should be a part of, and we're sort of waiting, Lord, reveal these things to us. Let us know your will in these things. I don't think those things are necessarily wrong, but I think here, more carefully, Paul is focused on helping them to be clear on this. And it's this, how you live in the light of who he is. Okay, I've tried to boil it right down. How you live in the light of who he is. That is, who is Jesus? And what has he done? And what does that mean for us as we seek to live for him? I think that's at the heart of what's going on here. How you live in the light of who he is. Because you see, if they've lost sight of Christ, if they've lost sight of who he is, then how you live just won't work. They just won't get it. And if they've gone to the wrong places for growth, or if they don't know how to live in the light of who he is, or if they've even blended into sort of cosmopolitan Colossae, well, he prays that they might know God's will with all wisdom and understanding. He's praying that they might learn to think in gospel terms. They might live lives shaped by the reality of the real Jesus. To know what it is to be a disciple of Jesus, to remember to see the world through those correct glasses, through the gospel of grace rather than Sacred, Western, modern values. How you live in the light of who he is. And so he says, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. I was just thinking this week, how would that shape our prayer times as a church? How would that change the way we, we ask for prayer in home groups? The kind of vulnerability we're prepared to give to others as a church as we ask people to pray for us? What does it mean for us that we might know God's will? And as we've said, this knowledge of, of God's will, this This knowledge of him is not simply something that stays in your head. It's not an academic exercise. It's profoundly practical because gospel thinking shapes gospel living through the week. And I take it you know you. You know the reality of your hearts. You know where you struggle with this. You know what it is for you to struggle as a disciple, as a Christian. Why do we struggle? 
Well, maybe in part because we haven't got our gospel thinking correct. Maybe there are holes. Maybe there are things that need to be corrected. That means we might then have more faithful gospel living. Do we have this big story of who God is and what he has done and of what he is doing and of where we fit in? Are those things in our framework? Because wrong thinking results in wrong living and vice versa. And so he prays for them. He prays that they might live a life worthy of the Lord, verse 10. And then he fleshes that out, I think, with what that means. I take it we're meant to feel the challenge of that. I think there are at least four things in there that please Jesus. Four things that talk about or that show a life worthy of the Lord. You can see them on the screen. The build broke, never mind. Just act surprised as we move through them, okay? Number one is bearing fruit. What does it mean to live a life worthy of the Lord? Well, firstly, we're to be a people who bear fruit in every good work. That is, because of the gospel of grace, because your life has been turned upside down by God's kindness, by his love, there, now go and do good that bears fruit. And I say this carefully, but an inactive Christian, in one sense, is a complete contradiction in terms. Now, of course, we know works don't rescue us. It's not what we do that makes God love us. But he's not rescued us to, to put our feet up. He's rescued us to pull our sleeves up. To get on with the task of living for him. And yet our problem is, we live in a world where looking after number one is a sacred modern value. And we so easily bow down with everyone else. And so as we seek to please Jesus, as we seek to live a life worthy, let's pray that we might be a people who bear fruit in our good works. All kinds of ways that can be worked out for us. All kinds of things going on in the life of this church. We probably know, if you've been here for a while, that there will be many opportunities coming up with a new building project and involvement may be good works that he is urging you into as you live out the gospel of grace. So bearing fruit in every good work. The second one then is growing in the knowledge of God. That's their second half of verse 10, do you see? The danger can be we're just satisfied with our knowledge of him. But as we get to know him better, so we get to know what it means to live for him better too. And that ties in again with verse 9. Now, it's relatively easy, and I know this, to be a lover of theology and to read books and to keep it hypothetical and arm's length and to know about God. That's a pretty common thing in churches. Hey, we can answer the questions in the Bible studies, can't we? We know the right answers. And the Pharisees knew their Bibles amazingly. They knew the right answers. But they missed the one whom it was about. And so can we, so easily. And so when he talks about growing in the knowledge of God, he's not talking about being able to pass the exam. He's talking about loving him more. 
Next week, David will be taking us through the the next little section of chapter one, stretching our view of who Jesus is. We'll be digging deeper into who this God is and what he is like, how, how lovely he is. But not so we can pass exams. But rather we can see his beauty, his majesty, his kindness. We can, we can treasure him more, love him more, understand him more, and so know him better. Which then ties in with the third one. This idea of endurance and patience. What does it mean to live a life worthy of the Lord? It means enduring and being patient. He's concerned that they would be a flash in the pan, church. A, a faith that shoots up and then dies back down again. A faith that sprints and collapses to the side of the road. Now, Paul wants endurance and patience. This idea again of hope. What happens then? Shaping now. Strengthened by God with all power. Again, I think it's a a thing in our world we're just not great at. We're not great at persevering with things. We're not great at plodding, at keeping going. The day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, enduring, pressing on for the long haul. We, We get distracted. We're after the next thing, the next silver bullet. We're looking for the shortcuts. We're looking for the kind of ways around the hardships. But Paul prays that they would, that they would endure. That they would be patient. Daily surviving. Even through hard times. Even through desert times. Even when we're not quite sure we can keep going. So we cling to this gospel of grace for the fuel to keep going. And then keep going. And then keep going some more. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. And we finish there and it all sounds a bit kind of stoic and British. And keep on keeping on, old chap. Which is why I love the way he finishes with joyful thanksgiving, verse 12. And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Even as we endure and as we persevere and as we plod, we're marked by thanksgiving. Because we know who our God is. Because we love Jesus. We said last week there is this focus going through Colossians again of being a people who who give thanks who are thankful, who have grasped how big he is, who remember the big story and are thankful in the midst of our little stories because we've been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints that he talks of there. And so it's a striking prayer, isn't it? Paul looks at them and he's encouraged by them. You guys, your world has been turned upside down. You are completely different. And that's not just through effort, That's not just turning over new leaves. That is through the gospel of grace that has transformed you. That is through a faith in a truth that changes lives. And you know it's not about looking after number one. And you know it's not about cramming all you can in. And you know it's not about relativistic, self-justifying truth to justify why you want to do what you want to do. But rather it's gospel that changes you. 
a life increasingly shaped by the gospel, gospel activity, as we bear fruit in every good work, as we grow in the knowledge of our, and our love of our God, as we endure and are patient for the long haul, and as we are thankful and joyful on the way. How does that happen? Maybe you see those four things and you just think, man, that's, that's not me. I, I, I wish it was, but I know that's not me. Well, I take it again, gospel living is linked with gospel thinking. It's better grasping in our heads, in our hearts, who this Jesus is, what he's like, what he's done, what he is doing. And friends, if you want to know more about this Jesus, if you want to know how beautiful he is, then come back next week. Let me pray for us. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Our Father, we pray that your spirit would come and work in us and among us, that we might better grasp who Jesus is and what it means for us to live for him, so that we might know your will better. Lord, we look in our own hearts and we see the reality of our sin, of compromise, of lukewarmness, of things we, we do and say and think which we, we are so ashamed of. And so we thank you that it all hangs around your grace. Thank you for the Colossian church and their example of being a people who have been transformed by grace. We long that you would increasingly do that among us. Lord, help us to be honest about the reality of our hearts, of indwelling, ongoing sin. And then help us quickly to come to you as the God of grace. The one whose grace is sufficient. In Jesus' name. Amen.